Welcome to today's podcast, Art of the Undeal, Implications of the U.S. Exit from the Iran Agreement. The 2015 Iran Nuclear Agreement, formerly known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, lifted economic sanctions on Iran in return for nuclear nonproliferation. President Trump announced on May 8th that the U.S. would withdraw from the deal, and OFAC published guidance clarifying that the U.S. would reimpose sanctions on the Iranian regime, staggering the implementation over the course of the next six months. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence sits down with David Cohen and Zachary Goldman from Wilmer Hale to discuss the implications of the U.S. exit from the agreement and the pragmatic steps companies need to take to avoid running afoul of renewed sanctions. David is a partner in Wilma Hale's regulatory and government affairs and litigation controversy practices. Before joining, rejoining Wilma Hale, he served for eight years in senior presidentially appointed positions, including deputy director of the CIA. He was the undersecretary for terrorism and financial intelligence at the U.S. Department of the Treasury and directly supervised OFAC and FinCEN, where he was instrumental in developing and implementing sanctions against Iran, Russia, North Korea, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other terrorist organizations. Zachary's practice focuses on national security, data privacy, intelligence, financial sanctions and anti-money laundering, cybersecurity, cryptocurrency, and distributed ledger technology and technology law and policy. Before joining Wilmer Hale, he was the executive director at NYU Law School's Center on Law and Security and an adjunct professor of law, teaching courses on national security law and cybersecurity. Zachary previously served as a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and as a policy advisor at the Treasury's Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes. I'll now turn it over to Rain's founder, David Lawrence. David? Well, thank you. It's a great honor to be here with David and uh, Zach, two individuals who are extraordinarily experienced um, in the area of sanctions and what I'll refer to as uh, foreign state and Treasury policy. And um, as indicated by Greg's introduction, uh, the perspectives I'll bring to bear are very, uh, very, very unique and are based upon uh, having worked with uh, many administrations. So first of all, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, let's begin with um, under a basic understanding of the purpose of sanctions, and there is a fair amount of misunderstanding out, out there. Uh, many people seem to understand sanctions as an end to themselves as opposed to the fact that uh, they are intended as tools of statecraft meant to accomplish specific objectives uh, from a security standpoint, from a foreign policy standpoint, and from what I'll refer to as a financial integrity standpoint. Uh, maybe you can help explain for the audience um, the objectives and uh, sort of level set why sanctions are implemented, how they've emerged over the years as an effective tool, and I think that that will naturally segue into understanding the current environment and some predictability in this area. David, do you want to start? Sure, I'll take. I'll, I'll start, and Zach uh, will correct me. Um, the basic theory of sanctions is that they are a tool to help change behavior, and it's a tool that is best used and really only useful if it is embedded in a broader effort to change behavior. Um, sanctions, as you indicated, David, are not a policy unto themselves. They are one of the ways that the U.S. government can project power to try to alter an adversary's behavior. So I, mean, I think the, the best example that I think of is, is what we use sanctions for in the Iran context back in the Obama administration, where sanctions were part of the overall policy which was this dual-track policy increased pressure on the Iranians with the offer of a negotiation over their nuclear program. But there were other elements to that policy. There was the threat of military action. There was diplomatic uh, initiatives with our allies to reinforce the message that we were interested in a peaceful resolution of the concern over Iran's nuclear program. Uh, there were uh, other efforts that were undertaken to drive home to the Iranians that they had a choice to make between continuing with a nuclear program or negotiating uh, a resolution of the concerns. So sanctions, if they are not tethered to a policy, and if that policy isn't embedded in a broader national security foreign policy approach, um, 
lose a great deal of their effectiveness because they are um, they sort of hang out there without any support from others around the world. There's less predictability. There's less certainty about what the sanctions are trying to achieve. Um, but if they are embedded in a in a broader policy and in a broader national security strategy, they can be a very effective tool. Zach. Um, I, I think that was a, obviously an incredibly uh, concise and eloquent statement of the purpose of sanctions. I think with that, maybe it makes sense, given the recent developments in the Iran context, to go back a little bit, understand what Iran sanctions had been designed to achieve up until a week or two ago, uh, what had changed with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. Uh, and, and maybe some thoughts about where we go from here. So starting in the mid-1990s, sanctions on Iran, U.S. sanctions on Iran, began with the takeover of the American embassy uh, during the revolution in 1979. In the mid-1990s, um, a, a series of measures were adopted that effectively cut U.S. persons, U.S. companies, and, and American individuals off from Iran. So for most of the last 20 or so years, Americans had, by and large, been barred from doing business in Iran. In the mid-2000s, uh, additional information was revealed about the Iranian nuclear program, and the U.S. and its allies, the international community, began a much more concerted effort to pressure Iran to come to the table. There were a series of U.N. Security Council resolutions starting in 2006. The U.S. first designated an Iranian bank for WMD-related purposes in 2007. And in 2010, with the adoption of a new statute in the U.S. and a new U.N. Security Council resolution, the pressure uh, phase of, of the international community's engagement on the Iranian nuclear program really accelerated. And in the three years that followed, a broad international coalition was assembled to effectively isolate Iran from the international economic system. A centerpiece of those efforts were what are called secondary sanctions. So the U.S. embargo that I described a minute ago was, was, a, was a key example of primary sanctions, sanctions that apply to people that are subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Secondary sanctions are different. They focus on companies and individuals that generally are not subject to U.S. jurisdiction and effectively force them to make a choice between doing business in Iran and doing business in the U.S. That was really the key that generated the pressure that ultimately led to an interim nuclear agreement with Iran in 2013 and a final agreement with Iran in 2015. That agreement really had three main components. In exchange for concessions with regard to its nuclear program, the EU lifted most of its sanctions on Iran. The U.S. lifted most but not all of its secondary sanctions on Iran, and the U.S adopted a few key amendments to its primary sanctions program that, that in theory were designed to give Iran some relief from the embargo that had existed. That was the state of play until about a week ago uh, when the Trump administration effectively rolled the clock back to what the sanctions regime looked like prior to the implementation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The changes will be implemented over a six-month period. Some sanctions will snap back in 90 days. Others will snap back in 180 days. Um, but that's the basic layout. If I could just add one thing to that. The, exactly, exactly right. What happened about a week ago was the sanctions, at least the U.S. sanctions, were effectively reintroduced over the six-month period. But what didn't happen were two critical elements. One was the other sanctions, the EU and the UN sanctions, which were a critical component of the pressure strategy that led to the deal, those did not come back into effect. And in fact, as I think people understand, both the EU and more broadly the UN is not in support of the, the change in U.S. approach and the reimposition of U.S. sanctions. So you don't have this broad international coalition that was critical to building up the sanctions. And even more importantly, what you don't have is the, the near universal policy agreements across the, the international community of what the goal is. Back when we were building up this pressure strategy in the, in the, the period that, that Zach mentioned, that we were doing that with our allies and our, you know, basically our frenemies around the world, but 
we were all in alignment that a pressure strategy leading to a negotiation was preferable to the alternative. Needless to say, there is not an international consensus right now that the thing to do with Iran is to reintroduce uh, a, the old sanctions regime or what Secretary Pompeo uh, described uh, in a recent uh, speech you know, trying to articulate the administration's strategy of Iran, which is the strongest sanctions in history. There is not an international consensus that that, that, that strategy that use of sanctions is part of a strategy that uh, that the world is uh, is comfortable with. All right. So you, both of you have outlined sort of a cause and effect aspect to this, and that there is this uh, sanctions are means to an end. Uh, you've also underscored a, a few things that um, the objectives are not always clear. So as we look around the globe, whether it's Iran, North Korea, Russia, Venezuela, Cuba and other um, sort of potential areas and individuals. Businesses are trying to gain an element of predictability out of all of this. Right. They're trying to figure out where can I invest capital, where can I in turn get capital out if I need to, whom can I partner with, where are the new markets. And maybe you can give us the prism for how to look at things. And obviously the current administration has been I'll call it spoken of as being a bit unpredictable. Um, some people feel that's a method of the negotiation process. But clearly, businesses around the world, our allies around the world, are trying to extract a degree of predictability in terms of understanding the sanctions that are being imposed. What exactly is the objective, and what what can they begin to navigate, and how to think about the future? So, let me let me give you guys that jump ball. Sure, um, it is uh, you know just sort of go back to what we were talking about just before that if you have sanctions that are part of a articulated, clearly understood strategy, then there is some predictability both in what the sanctions targets will be and what the enforcement of the sanctions will look like. Um, I think in, in the world today, I think the Trump administration has embraced unpredictability, both, as you say, David, as a, as a, uh, a feature, uh, but it's also a bug. Uh, it is a feature of their foreign policy, and I think the President Trump uh, has, you know, has embraced this to to do things that are uh, unexpected. Um, but it's also, I think, a, a fact that this administration's policy formation process is one that lacks a, a bit of the regularity of uh, that we have seen in prior administrations. And that means you see sort of head-snapping shifts, like, for instance, the announcement uh, of a couple weeks ago that the penalties against ZTE might be relaxed. That was something that did not go through the interagency as a considered judgment. Um, it was sort of directly contrary to what you would expect if you were uh, looking to um, demonstrate to the world that you were serious about sanctions, particularly on Iran and North Korea, since ZTE uh, faced its, its penalty because of violations. And just for the audience, ZTE is the uh, uh, very, very large uh, Chinese telecommunications company, right. yeah. which has had a, uh, we'll call it a challenging relationship over the years, and um, our national security officials have expressed at various points in time, now going back probably 10 years or so, uh, concerns about where they're doing business, how they're doing business, and some of the technology aspects of their business. Right. And, and at the very beginning of the Trump administration, a very significant penalty was imposed on ZTE because of violations of the Iran and North Korea sanctions, um, and then that was sort of doubled down on uh, relatively recently because ZTE didn't comply with the settlement agreement that it entered into. But then, you know, we had a tweet from President Trump a couple of weeks ago saying that you know, he's going to look to to save Chinese jobs by relaxing the. Directing the Commerce Department to consider relaxing the penalties on ZTE, but the point really isn't about ZTE so much as the unpredictability of the sanctions approach. That makes it very difficult for businesses to plan uh, 
how to engage with the world because uh, you know you want to be able to understand not just who is at risk of being sanctioned, but also what sort of behavior, if you engage in it, will result in an enforcement action. And I think in the Iran context, and, and we should talk about this, as these sanctions come back into effect over the next six months, one of the significant questions is what's the administration's enforcement strategy going to be, particularly with respect to secondary sanctions against non-U.S. businesses and financial institutions, uh, Will the U.S. look to you make examples of people? Will it be very aggressive in its enforcement? Or will it try to ease off a little bit, as they did in the ZTE example, because of broader diplomatic and other foreign policy considerations? Um, I have some thoughts on that, but let me give Zach a chance to jump in here. Sure. I mean, so maybe it makes sense just to talk about the choices that, that companies in particular in Asia and in Europe face. So, um, as I said, when the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, went into effect, that resulted in the waiver of most U.S. secondary sanctions. And what that meant as a practical matter is that European and Asian businesses, by and large, were free to go back into Iran, provided that they weren't doing business with certain Iranian entities that remain subject to sanctions, in particular the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Iran's kind of paramilitary uh, uh, Praetorian Guard, <clears throat> and entities affiliated with it. And, and that that is actually a big deal because the IRGC operates very broadly in the Iranian economy in a way that's not familiar to most Americans and maybe most Europeans. But uh, nonetheless, many uh, uh, brand name European and Asian companies did reinvest in Iran, most probably notably Total, biggest French energy producer, signed a big uh, deal to develop part of the South Pars gas field. Others went in as well. Um, and you had the Boeing contract. Right. Boeing and Airbus famously both signed significant contracts with Iran Air to provide, uh, to provide airplanes to the, to the Iranian flag carrier. The, the secondary sanctions that were waived and that facilitated the reentry of European and Asian companies into Iran will phase back in over the next 90 and 180 days. Uh, depending on the specific sanctions at issue. And at that point, or, or you know, before that point, ideally, European and Asian companies will have to face a choice. Uh, and that choice is whether they will continue to do business Iran, in Iran and risk facing American secondary sanctions, which means being cut off from the largest financial market in the world, um, or not. As David mentioned, the 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 administration's approach to enforcing these secondary sanctions at this moment is unknown. Prior to the president's tweet about ZTE and directing the Commerce Park Department to consider relaxing the, the ban on providing uh, component parts to ZTE, it would have been reasonable to expect that the administration would take a very hard line with respect to enforcing secondary sanctions. Now it's really anybody's guess. Um, I would say the last piece of this that's going to be interesting to watch is how the political leadership in Europe and Asia react to the president's announcement. Iran has said that it is willing to uh, uh, remain in compliance with the nuclear-related obligations under the JCPOA, provided that it continues to receive the economic benefits that Europe was, uh, was, was, was giving it in the last several years. Um, but it remains to be seen how European governments and how European companies will balance their desire to keep Iran bound to the terms of the deal on the one hand. On the other hand, the risk that they will be exposing themselves and in the case of the governments, their companies to uh, a ban on, on, on access to the American market. Yeah, and that's going to play out in a couple of different interesting ways. So both in Europe, there's talk now about reintroducing or reinvigorating the blocking uh, statute that they have in Europe, which essentially says if you comply with U.S. sanctions um, and 
and as a result, breach a contract, um, you are violating EU law. So it's sort of the effect, the intent of that statute is to block the effect of U.S. sanctions, in particular secondary sanctions. So that creates a, a very difficult conflict of law issue for European companies. And the Russian Duma is currently considering legislation that sort of, in the very Russian fashion, uh, torques that up and says if you comply with U.S. sanctions, it's a criminal offense in Russia and you can be imprisoned for four years for complying with U.S. sanctions and breaching a contract in Russia, creating a, a very uh, exquisite conflict of law uh, problem for companies that are doing business in Russia. Um, just one other thing to, to keep in mind here. The secondary sanctions um, at their core basically say you know, either you do business with the United States or you do business with the, the foreign entity, but you can't do both. But there is an element of, of a bluff in there, which is to say that for these sanctions to work, the U.S. needs to be willing to cut off the business that chooses Iran over the United States in this instance. And we've done that in the past, but we've done it with relatively small uh, financial institutions and, and other businesses. You know, there was we we applied secondary sanctions against an Iraqi bank and a small Chinese bank um, during the the ramp up of the sanctions uh, back. That was probably around 2014 or so, 2013. Um, the question going forward is going to be, I think, whether this administration is prepared to pull the trigger on secondary sanctions, particularly with respect to Iran's oil sales. Because one of the sanctions that's going to be snapping back in six months is the requirement that countries significantly reduce their oil purchases from Iran. The way that that is enforced is through secondary sanctions, and it's secondary sanctions against the bank and the foreign jurisdiction that would be paying the Central Bank of Iran for that country's oil imports. Those banks tend to be the largest banks in those countries. So at some point, this administration is, may confront the question of whether they are prepared to, for instance, cut off the Bank of China from the United States uh, because China is not significantly reducing its oil imports from Iran. Yeah, that's a, that is a, that's a hard choice to make because the economic consequence of that, not just to China, but to the global economy and to the U.S. economy, um, would be quite significant. Um, and you know, it, in a situation where you had the Chinese on board as a policy matter, we didn't need to face that choice uh, when we were driving down Iran's oil sales. Going forward, you know, needless to say, China is not on board with what this administration is doing with respect to Iran. And the, the question I think they may have to confront, we'll see, is whether they're prepared to enforce secondary sanctions against you know, some of the largest financial institutions in the world. Okay, so I'm going to go back to this lack of predictability here and what is particularly challenging to businesses that are trying to maintain not only business operations but their relationships around the world. So it's both in terms of the announcement of these sanctions and how they seem to just come out. Um, the importance of the clarity of the milestones for sort of what they're trying to accomplish. But both of you are introducing it a third element, which is the conflict of laws provision, in that a company that is doing business in the leading developing markets and developed markets around the world will find themselves potentially in a conundrum whereby to comply with U.S. sanctions will violate other, other laws. And uh, as a, someone once said, when the big boys go bowling, you don't want to be a pin. <laughs> and, you know, that's the way companies are now viewing this. So it's a lack of predictability, also, quite frankly, a lack of guidance and clarity. And I'm curious how it is that the U.S. government begins to think through these issues because, David, as you just mentioned, there's some pretty important economic and financial um, We'll call it markets at stake here. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some people who have noted uh, the significance of cutting off any of the Chinese banks or, or you know, designating them and the implications that that can have. Are we thinking through these 
various orders of consequences, number one, and number two, who is actually doing the thinking here, and how do we begin to understand how this might get clarified? Well, the people who would be doing the thinking here would be folks in Treasury, uh, in particular, uh, in OFAC, but also in the the economic policy part of Treasury, um, and folks in the State Department, folks in the in the NSC, uh, in particularly in the international economics part of the NSC. That's um, that's the normal place for these for this consideration to be given. I will say one of the recent uh, examples, I think, of a of sanctions policy that wasn't fully thought through were the sanctions, the Russia sanctions that were announced uh, on April 6th that included sanctions on Oleg Deripaska and, by extension, on Rusal, um, which resulted in a enormously significant impact on the aluminum market, um, so much so that the Treasury extended the, the general license for six months to allow some uh, process by which uh, Deripaska could uh, reduce his holdings in Rusal and Rusal could get out from under the sanctions. But essentially, it has, it has waived the sanctions on Rusal uh, for another six months. That came about because of the economic consequence of sanctions on a you know, relatively significant economic player, Rusal, that I think had not been fully anticipated when the sanctions were announced. For purposes of the audience, Rusal is one of the leading aluminum producers in the world, one of the top three, right. and it saw its uh, market cap absolutely crushed. Yeah, right. And, and you know, the effect on the aluminum market was not just that prices skyrocketed, but that actual supply was becoming uh, scarce and, you know, Everybody from the Airbuses of the world to, to smaller manufacturers were worried about uh, getting the aluminum that they needed to continue to, to operate, and so the the sanctions were um, were postponed for another six months. We'll see whether they ever come into effect. But I think that is just a an example of the kind of economic consequence that can occur in a a secondary sanction context. Um, that this administration is going to need to think through as it um, as it pursues Secretary Pompeo's uh, you know promise to reimpose the strongest or to impose the strongest sanctions in history. Yeah, I, I obviously I agree with everything David said. I mean, I would just note that these kinds of conflict of laws issues are cropping up not only in the Iran context where they're opposed very acutely, uh, but in other contexts as well. And so something uh, we've been thinking a lot about lately is the following conflict between uh, anti-money laundering obligations of global financial institutions and Europe's new global data protection regulation, which goes into force uh, at the end of this week, actually. So as, as a matter of, of regulatory requirement and, and market expectations, U.S. banks, at least, that operate globally have an expectation that they will run global risk management programs for anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance. Uh, rules like the Global Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR in Europe, and also uh, strict data privacy regulations elsewhere in the world can make it difficult for companies at a group level to move data to the various corporate affiliates around the world that need it for anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance uh, uh, obligations. How do companies navigate these challenges? I, I mean, I think two things are, are important to keep in mind. One is this points up yet again uh, the importance of embedding these kinds of measures in uh, coherent policy and strategic outcomes because uh, these are situations in which regulatory agencies around the world may need to start coordinating with each other to ensure uh, as much coherence as possible across regimes. And two, it, it puts a premium on companies really understanding their regulatory exposure and regulatory risk. All this to say that these kinds of conflicts, I think, will become more, not less common, and they will exist not only within particular areas of the law, but also as different areas of the law start to converge on a global basis with companies that are doing business around the world. So, Zach, you raised a, a number of additional important points, and I'm uh, reminded of a op-ed piece which, David, your predecessor, Stuart Levy, wrote for the Wall Street Journal 
uh, maybe five years or so ago, uh, when the sanctions in Iran were lifted and uh, there was still a lack of uh, activity in Iran, commercial activity. And I believe then Secretary of State Kerry was on a tour to encourage companies to make business, and Stewart had come forward to say, not so fast and explain why HSBC, where his general counsel, was not going to be rushing in. And so, Zach, when you talk about sanctions, obviously it's, it's, it's almost one ball of wax with such concerns as corruption and anti-money laundering. Um, you referenced the, um, the National Guard in Iran, and the Revolutionary Guard, and how intertwined they are in businesses. And so this is not just a single issue for companies to navigate. And uh, now that both of you are in the private sector, um, and I can tick through um, some of the most challenging markets, but also some of the most promising markets. Russia, at one point in time, had been a very promising market. China is certainly a place where people are still trying to figure out how to do business. Um, we'll see what happens with South Korea and North Korea and their discussions, and Venezuela. Uh, notwithstanding uh, pronouncements, we're not in the regime change business. It looks very much like mm -hmm. something may happen there, and um, there's certainly a lot of oil in Venezuela that people, you know, have been interested in. And so, as you think through um, the guidance that you have to give companies, not just on sanctions, but the anti-corruption concerns, the anti-money laundering concerns, the general reputational concerns. Um, particularly around social investing and human rights and things like that. Maybe you can um, set forth some of the advice that you're giving clients uh, around this because um, if you're just reading the headlines, you're, you're, you're going to be, quite frankly, paralyzed. And you have to think ahead, and you also don't want to put either people or capital against a non-witting um, trade. So. So I think in many of those places that you described, um, and I think Iran uh, not included, um, there's, uh, and probably Venezuela also not included, we advise clients that they can do business. Um, so in Russia and China, uh, you know, obviously in South Korea, not so much in North Korea. Um, but, you know, each of, each of those jurisdictions presents sort of unique challenges that you need to take into account. There's obviously the sanctions risk. Um, and to go back to something we were talking about earlier, some of the lack of predictability in the administration's sanctions approach um, in, in Russia uh, with respect to North Korea, which is really China sanctions, uh, makes the, uh, the decision to, to do business in those jurisdictions um, a little bit more fraught, but not impossible. I mean, you can, you can navigate that. You've got to think about corruption. You've got to think about how you're going to do business there without violating the FCPA or, uh, or other anti-bribery, anti-corruption statutes. Um, and you've got to think about, as, as, as Zach mentioned, uh, some of the, the issues around sort of illicit finance and, and money laundering issues and how, you know, who's paying you, how you're getting paid, what the, what the financial institutions involved are. But in, in all of those circumstances, you know, there's, there are uh, you know, potentially lucrative business opportunities that, um, that in a risk-reward analysis uh, can, you know, can be uh, you know, grasped by, uh, by businesses. They just need to uh, go in with their eyes open and frankly with some good advice about what to avoid and how to how to uh, avoid getting caught up uh, with actors who may be uh, unsavory or uh, or or targets of future uh, government action by the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think the, the thing to think about when one is doing business in a high-risk jurisdiction is how, when on the front end, if things go south, how might you exit relationships that are high risk and then build that into the contractual arrangements you've made. So if you were doing business in Russia 
at the end of 2013 or early 2014, there was no reason to think that one of the most draconian financial sanctions programs uh, that had been conceived was about to be imposed on one of the largest economies in the world. Nonetheless, Russia was a high-risk place to do business for all of the financial integrity reasons we were talking about. And so it wouldn't have been unreasonable to think about structuring your contracts and structuring your commercial arrangements so that your exposure is minimized at any given time commercially and that you could exit or renegotiate contracts if something uh, something significant from a regulatory perspective came to pass. And so I think folks that are doing business in, in high-risk jurisdictions ought to keep those kinds of self-protective measures in mind. Okay, so I want to push back on both of you simply because, you know, I had these more interesting that way. No, I, no, I had a, the benefit of a 20-year postdoctoral um, study at Goldman Sachs. Okay. So when you're dealing with clients, you're often competing on the world market with other banks and other institutions. And basically, clients want to know that you will be there, not just for this single transaction, but for everything. And a constant refrain that came up uh, inside is, just simply tell us, can we do business with these guys, as opposed to selectively limited with all sorts of hedges, with all sorts of outs. Clients expect it, business people expect it. Yet, um, I'm not sure that um, everyone in the government understands the nuances of competing on a global stage for business. And um, as you think about sort of the Again, the opportunities that are out there, one other frustration is that if, David, you in particular highlighted it by uh, the fact that some of our frenemies and some of our allies uh, may no longer be um, aligned on Iran, is that we are competing. U.S. Uh, companies and Western Europe companies are competing on a world stage, mm -hmm. and they're competing against other uh, entities, institutions, and countries who have money, who back uh, various um, enterprises. And so the real question here is how is our government sort of balancing the policy objectives on one side, which is Iran, obviously it's nuclear proliferation and some other things, with uh, national security implications that come from uh, the ability for companies to do business and our sort of stature within the world. Well, the, the classic way to do that is to have your um, sort of financial and economic sanction strategy be one that the rest of the world agrees with and also adopts. Um, and so in the Iran context, um, you know, as Zach mentioned, right after the 79 revolution, we imposed essentially a complete embargo on U.S. businesses doing business in Iran. So the U.S. business community has been disadvantaged with respect to the rest of the world in Iran for you know, several decades now. Um, but as we were building up these sanctions uh, in the last decade, one of the things we spent a lot of time doing was making sure that others, particularly the EU and to some extent at the UN, were imposing similar sanctions so there wasn't an uneven playing field. Likewise, when we imposed the sanctions after the Russian invasion of Crimea and their incursion into eastern Ukraine, spent a lot of time harmonizing what we were doing with what the EU was doing so there wasn't an uneven playing field. That's the best way to, to protect uh, U.S. businesses' uh, interests in not being you know, handcuffed while the rest of their competitors around the world uh, in this global marketplace are free to operate. But it's not perfect. Um, and you know, one of the benefits of the U.S financial system, the U.S. economy being the most important in the world, is that we have greater leverage uh, to use our, our place in the world to try to achieve our foreign policy and national security objectives, but that's also, it also means that our businesses and our financial institutions often are on the front lines and bear the brunt of this. Um, but, uh, you know, it, if this administration uh, you know, focuses on trying to bring along others, particularly in Iran now, um, uh, but you know, increasingly with, with Russia and with North Korea as well, that tends to level the playing field. The you know, sort of unilateralist, we're going it alone approach um, is both, I think, 
less effective as a sanction strategy and also more harmful to, to U.S. business interests around the world. So, Zach, uh, previously when you were uh, the director for NYU Center for National Security, I know you had a lot of questions and you fielded a lot of uh, what I'll refer to as um, challenging um, inquiries from private sector institutions around uh, the imposition of sanctions. Uh, let me particularly push on, on, on you for the following proposition, that um, there's a asymmetry uh, around the information that the government has and the private sector has, yet the private sector has found itself not only the subject of a certain degree of unpredictability, but obviously enforcement actions. And um, we have spoken in the past about the Russian sovereign debt offering and banks were free to participate until they weren't and they received a call on the eve of the offering where Treasury um, warned the institutions that if they were going to participate, there might be a lot of things that they didn't know about where the money might be going and they're putting themselves at risk. Maybe you can uh, address that aspect of quote, the landscape that companies have to navigate and how they should be thinking about the asymmetrical nature of information here and that not everything has to be announced in order to present some exposure, and particularly in the context of Russia, Iran, and, and China. Sure. I mean, so it's, it's very difficult, in particular in those three jurisdictions you, you identified, Russia, Iran, China, and, and there is a clear regulatory expectation that you know your customers, particularly in the financial services sector, um, where that is an explicit regulatory obligation, uh, but also in, in other industries as well where companies are sort of constructively held to the, the obligation to know your customer. So I think, you know, in the, in the Russian debt example, I mean, that, that's a particularly uh, interesting case. And there, this was two or three years ago, uh, the Russian government was effectively engaged in a scheme where it offered uh, a series of bonds, sovereign debt, effectively to recapitalize private Russian banks that had been uh, uh, hit by sanctions that constrained their ability independently to access the capital markets. And that may be a situation in which, uh, paradoxically perhaps, the process worked in that the government had information at its disposal that may not have been obvious to the private sector. And, you know, effectively or not, it provided that information to the private sector that, that if they were going to be participating in this sovereign debt offering, that they were effectively going to be taking part in a, in a scheme of sanctions evasion and that they ought to keep that in mind when making decisions about whether or not to purchase these bonds. I mean, I think that the way I think about this is that is that it's a shared responsibility, right? That there are things that the government has access to, obviously, that will always be the case, that the private sector does not have access to. Um, the government should share as much as it can within the constraints that are uh, that are that govern its its ability to protect sources and methods of, of information gathering, uh, to pr protect confidentiality of things like suspicious activity reports and the like. But the private sector also has an obligation to know with whom it's doing business, and that's not only it is a regulatory obligation, but it should not only be a regulatory obligation. It should be uh, motivated, in, at least in part, by by an, a self awareness of who we are as a commercial community and with whom we want to be doing business. Um, and so I, I think this is, there's no answer, I think. I think it's a, it's, as I said, a shared responsibility, the contours of which are going to be constantly evolving, but I think it's something that everybody needs to be focused on. Can I just add one thing on that? I, I think it's also right um, that the, the government, as it tries to implement these sanctions, um, is, you know, is relatively expert in how the sanctions work and is reasonably expert in, in what the business world looks like outside of, uh, you know, outside of the Treasury Department. But there's, but there's also a recognition that the world is a complex place and that, and that the reality of business relationships um, and the, the diversity of business relationships uh, is something that, that 
the folks in Treasury need to understand better. And that one of the services that you know that outside counsel can provide to businesses is to try to be the interface between what these businesses are trying to accomplish and what the folks who are applying the sanctions are trying to accomplish. Because there are often times where the actual impact of the sanctions does not fulfill the policy objective that the sanctions were, were adopted to try to achieve. And, and the folks at OFAC and folks at State Department as well um, are open to hearing that you know, in this particular circumstance, the, you know, the technical application of the sanctions runs counter to what you're trying to achieve. Uh, you can get specific licenses, you can get other relief from the government um, if you're able to sort of demonstrate that. And so I do think this sort of two-way street of information sharing, both so the government can, can inform the private sector about what it sees and what it's trying to achieve, and then the private sector also talking with the government about how this actually plays out in reality is a very healthy thing and something that you know the businesses shouldn't be afraid to engage in as a general matter. So that's a that, that last point I think is is critical and I've seen it play out numerous times. So in the few minutes we have remaining, uh, let me bring the discussion back to um, the topic of are sanctions in fact effective and how you measure the effectiveness. And um, this is a sort of a, uh, a world where people look for very quick results and returns. And uh, in fact, the sanction space is one that clearly has a very, very long-term horizon to it. Uh, one of the things I've, I've noted, I've noted to people is uh, while there's a debate about whether they work or don't work, one of the interesting things is whenever. Um, a negotiation begins with a country or a company, one of the first things that comes up is uh, we want the sanctions lifted, so which indicates that they're having a certain impact yes. uh, and they're an important uh, chip on the table. But as we um, think about long term and we're watching what I'll refer to as the volatility around North Korea and the negotiations, but also continued volatility around Russia. Now, emerging volatility um, around Iran and our relationships with um, European and other trading partners is how we think about um, the effectiveness here, measuring it, and beginning to understand sort of, um, again, what one can reasonably expect for the future. I'll give you my my. 30 seconds on, are sanctions effective? The answer is maybe. And it depends on context. And it depends most importantly on whether sanctions are part of a broader strategy, a broader policy, and not a policy unto themselves. I think sanctions, if they are the policy, if the policy is we're going to apply sanctions against you and... Punish you for punishment's sake. Right. It, they are not effective. Um, they, there's no path out of the sanctions in that circumstance. There's no prospect of international amplification in that circumstance. Um, and they, they tend to be much less effective. I think Cuba is the perfect example where we had comprehensive sanctions against Cuba for decades. To what end? Um, essentially to no end uh, because we were going it alone and there was no, there was no policy objective that was being pursued there. We were just hoping eventually that Fidel Castro would die. Um, but and, and also an internal, perhaps political objective in terms of right, right. constituency. Yeah. And if sanctions, are, if sanctions are, are imposed for domestic U.S. policy purposes, that is not an effective use of sanctions. Um, but sanctions can be very effective if they are part of a broader strategy. Um, you know, we talked about it with Iran. I think sanctions could be part of an effective strategy with North Korea. Uh, I think we have uh, sort of prematurely tried to cash in our chips there, um, and we'll see what happens with this uh, potential summit meeting with the president and Kim Jong-un. But the, the sanction strategy that the administration was beginning to pursue, I think, was beginning to, to yield some benefit, but I think we... Um, we didn't let the sanctions develop there sufficiently. So the, so the answer is yes, sanctions can be effective, but not if they're a policy unto themselves. 
Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I think one of the the sanctions programs that's perhaps most effective and that perhaps gets the least attention is the narco trafficking program, which has existed for two decades or more and in which people regularly are added to the sanctions list and then when they demonstrate that they have severed ties with various narco trafficking agencies are removed from the sanctions list. And I think that the regularity of delistings in the narco trafficking program actually is a testament to the program's really tremendous success over time. Um, but that is embedded in a very, very particular context with clear strategic aims uh, and, and, and a well-established process. And um, let's see if the same same situation pertains with respect to Iran moving forward. Okay, so there you're talking about individuals or entities as opposed to actual countries. Correct. Exactly. exactly. But the theory holds, I mean, this is how David began the conversation, is that sanctions are a tool to change behavior. And in that context, if you are a peripheral uh, uh, money services business that is providing services to a narco trafficking organization in Mexico or El Salvador or Colombia, and you're put on a sanctions list, you have a very clear path to re-engaging with the global financial community. Um, and that is to sever ties with the narco trafficking agencies. And so there's a clear context, there's a clear set of objectives, and a clear process by which those objectives are pursued. So a stick and a carrot. There's a clear stick and a clear carrot. Okay. This has been a great conversation. I will uh, just add a quick personal note that both David and Zach have been very, very constructive in guiding clients in some of the most difficult markets, relationships, and uh, amidst, I'll call it, ambiguity and changing times. And the theme that both have raised about uh, the ability to interact with the government and raise particular challenges that may not have been fully thought through in the implementation of policy or particular practices is um, it's, it's, it's one of the most important channels. And um, the government doesn't always listen, but they, their doors are, are often open, uh, sometimes formally with licenses, otherwise informally to, to hear. And no policy is perfect when it's first announced, so there are always uh, pivots and refinements. So I want to thank you because um, we're leveraging your experience and uh, perspective, um, and uh, we'll also argue nonpartisanship since you've been part of various uh, administrations and given guidance. So thank you very much for the conversation today and with more to come. Great. Thank you. Thanks, David.